Welcome to FASD Hope, a podcast about fetal alcohol spectrum disorder through the lens of parent advocates with over 20 years of lived experience. FASD Hope provides awareness, information, and inspiration to those people whose lives have been touched by FASD. And I'm the host of FASD Hope, Natalie Becchione. Welcome to today's episode. Welcome to FASD Hope. This is a very special episode. This episode is being aired on September 9th, which is International FASD Awareness Day. And I am so, so humbled to have back on our podcast, back on our show, Dr. Kenneth Lyons-Jones. If you'll remember, Dr. Jones was on episode 106, which aired on January 18th of 2022, titled The Leading Expert. We had an amazing conversation. Not only is Dr. Jones back to speak with us today, but I also have Andy Torzone, who works with Dr. Jones in the FASD clinic in San Diego. That's one of the many things that she does for families. And we are just going to have a great conversation and really talk about some key issues and uh, important topics. So Uh, With that lengthy introduction, Dr. Kenneth Jones and Andy Torzone, welcome and welcome back to FAC Hope. Thank you so much. (laughs) Thank you very much. So Dr. Jones, I am so thrilled that you are here today with Andy. And one of the things we wanted to talk about was FASD at 50. It's been almost 50 years since your recognition and identification of fetal alcohol syndrome in 1973. And what you did changed the trajectory of how people viewed prenatal alcohol exposure. So listeners are aware of Dr. Jones and the amazing work that he's done. Um, I'd like Andy to just uh, talk a little bit about her background and the work that she does with Dr. Jones and uh, for families. Hi. Um, Well, currently I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist in the state of California. And I also act as a clinic care coordinator for the UCSD uh, clinic that Dr. Jones runs. Before I became a therapist, I was an elementary school teacher for many years. In our clinic, I understand the different challenges uh, that families face with the FASD spectrum because of my background as an educator and a licensed therapist. So I believe I bring a different lens to the clinic along with the diagnostic uh, portion of it. And one of the many things that I, I took from Dr. Jones' conversation with me back in uh, that aired in January, one of the things he said was you have to have Andy on at FASD Hope because she's such an integral part of the clinic and and what she does just brings so much value. And um, I'm so glad you're here, Andy, because I really want to talk about some really key concepts I think that are important for family members, caregivers, loved ones, even educators to be aware of when they're talking about FASD. So Dr. Jones, I was so happy to participate in the No FASD Australia virtual summit back in May, which you gave an amazing keynote presentation, FASD at 50. One of the many takeaways from this wonderful presentation was your four critical issues in understanding and moving forward in FASD awareness and support as we approach the 50-year anniversary of your identification and recognition of fetal alcohol syndrome in 1973. 
Okay, so so basically that um, I, I I tried in that in that talk in those in the, my comments that day to uh, focus on the things that I think right now in 2022 are the the most important things to focus on as far as this condition is concerned. And there are obviously are a lot of things that are critical as far as this is concerned. But I sort of think about this in terms of these four probably first. And the first of these is, of course, diagnosis of this disorder. The second is uh, is prevention of this disorder. The third is stigma as it relates to this disorder. And uh, the fourth um, relate to relates to the justice system. And I, I would simply say, as far as that is concerned, um, that we are at a point, I think, where it is a problem to um, be aware of this disorder, to recognize this disorder uh, in the early years. Um, the, the reason I think is because, primarily because of the diagnosis. Initially in 1973, when this disorder was first recognized uh, in the United States, um, we thought that all children who were affected by alcohol or were exposed to alcohol and were affected to alcohol had this very specific disorder called the fetal alcohol syndrome, which was associated with growth deficiency, a small head, some very, very characteristic facial features that were subtle features uh, that were, we thought were uh, critical in terms of diagnosing having been affected by this disorder, and then neurodevelopmental abnormalities. And then in uh, 1996, the Institute of Medicine of the National Academy of Science came along and got involved in this disorder, and they uh, made the um, spectacular observation and conclusion after looking at uh, all the literature on that this disorder up until that time, uh, they concluded that prenatal exposure to alcohol was associated with a spectrum of defects. And at one end of the spectrum was the fetal alcohol syndrome, but at the other end of the spectrum was what we called alcohol-related neurodevelopmental disorder. And that disorder included um, children who were prenatally exposed to alcohol, but who did not have the growth deficiency, did not have the small head, did not have the facial features, but did have the neuro uh, developmental abnormalities. And as I say, we called that disorder ARND or alcohol-related neurodevelopmental disorder. And we now know, it's now absolutely 100% clear, and we see it in our clinic here at UCSD, and it's really seen this way throughout uh, the United States, and I think probably throughout the world as well, um, that um, out of every 10 children, who are diagnosed as having been affected by alcohol, um, 85 or eight and a half of those kids um, um, have uh, alcohol-related neurodevelopmental disorder. And really a very, very small percentage of those kids have the real fetal alcohol syndrome. And the result is that this disorder is not diagnosed um, at a young age. Um, it's not because the a pediatrician or the general practitioner or whoever is evaluating the child does not recognize that the child has been affected by alcohol because the child does not have the growth deficiency, does not have the small head, and does not have the neurobehavioral abnormalities. So that physician does not say, aha, this child has fetal alcohol syndrome or fetal alcohol spectrum disorder, nor does that physician 
uh, generally speaking, even ask the, the mom uh, or determine in any way if the baby was prenatally exposed um, to alcohol. And so the result is that the diagnosis is very difficult to make um, at this point. It is in fact rarely made in, in, in younger children. And, and so we are looking for other groups, other areas um, to be making a diagnosis uh, of this disorder. And by other, I mean other, other than um, physicians. And we are looking for um, low hanging fruit, if you will. Um, and one of those um, is the juvenile justice system, because the, the prevalence of this disorder in the juvenile justice system, uh, whereas here in San Diego County and really throughout the United States, the incidence of this disorder, the prevalence of this disorder is anywhere from 1.1 to 5% throughout the United States uh, in, um, in the school system. So the general population, if you will. But if you look in the um, criminal justice system, the screening programs that we have done here in San Diego in, in juvenile hall shows that 24% of kids in juvenile hall uh, have um, fetal alcohol spectrum disorder. Uh, so that is a way that I think we are going to more and more be making a diagnosis of this of this disorder and other ways that we need to be thinking of to diagnose this disorder at an early age is the educational system. We need to identify this disorder um, in kindergarten and preschool and early first grade uh, because that's a place where it is very clear if a child has been affected by alcohol uh, that they are can, can and should be identified and in the other places, of course, the foster care system. And it's really unclear um, what the true prevalence of this disorder in the foster care system is, uh, but it's probably, or at least some people have said that the prevalence is 75% of all kids in the foster care system. So those are three areas um, that we need to be looking at much, much more carefully. Uh, in terms um, of identifying this disorder in those systems, as opposed to looking to the medical profession, which has been where this diagnosis has been made in the past, that's where we need to be going for these kids in the juvenile justice system, in the educational system, and in the foster care system. So diagnosis is a, a huge thing that I think is critically important. And then the other things that I think are critically important other than the juvenile justice system, which I just talked about, is obviously uh, prevention of this disorder. Um, and the other is stigma. So let me say a word about stigma first, and then I'll talk about the um, prevention, um, which I think is perhaps the most critical issue as far as this disorder is concerned right now. Although stigma, if one is talking about prevention, stigma is really right up there because I don't think we are ever going to be able uh, to prevent this uh, disorder if we do not uh, deal with the stigma that is just ubiquitous as far as this condition is concerned. And, and it is uh, a horrible problem uh, for the public at large. Um, but the, thing, the, the group that I am most concerned about as far as stigma is concerned is the medical profession. And I think that um, we, I am a pediatrician and I think I, as a pediatrician or pediatricians in, in general, 
stigmatize um, children with this disorder and their and their mother um, probably worse than any other group stigmatizes uh, this disorder. And the group that stigmatizes them, I think more is obstetricians. Um, and what a tragedy that of course is. And by virtue of, the, of that stigma, um, pediatricians and obstetricians don't call attention to this disorder. They don't say um, to a woman who comes in uh, in early pregnancy, who they're seeing for the first time, they don't say uh, to her now. When when did you get? When did you first become aware you were pregnant? Um, and then and then is there any chance that you did things in those first uh, five and a half or six weeks before you found out you were pregnant that you clearly would not do when you were when you had all had found out you were pregnant? They they don't do that enough, and so they don't for reasons that aren't completely clear to me, but I think that it is, I think it is sort of almost intimidating or they feel like they're intimidating the pregnant woman if they ask her, ask her about alcohol during uh, her pregnancy or before she, even before she's aware that she's pregnant. And we as pediatricians um, unfortunately do the same thing. We don't, we don't first of all, we don't think that women in our practice would ever be drinking alcohol during pregnancy. And I use that as a quote that I heard from some pedi a pediatrician one day. Um, and so these kids don't get diagnosed early. And, um, and so the result of all this stigma, women do not tell their doctor that they drank alcohol during pregnancy because they don't feel like they want to be uh, stigmatized uh, by their doctor. And the result is that this um, condition gets hidden frequently. Now, I, I just want to say a word, and I'm going on and on too long here, but uh, <laughs> I just want to say a word uh, about prevention, because that's something that, um, as crazy as it seems to be, that's something that really um, has not been, there's, there's not much research that has been done on prevention of this disorder. And it's sort of bizarre that there's not, but the fact of the matter is that there's not. And, um, and, and, and so obviously people are starting to talk about why you shouldn't drink during your pregnancy. Um, and, um, you know, I, I think, and you know, there have been a number of ways that that has, has been approached. One of them, is that the Surgeon General in the United States has said that we should not that 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 any amount of alcohol during pregnancy is is a problem that there's no safe amount of alcohol to, to drink during pregnancy and and that was great and we thought when that happened that this this is going to really do a huge amount and then soon thereafter came um, this idea in many states in this country whereby. There were signs up in in bars and anywhere where alcohol was was uh, was sold, and and also that there were labels on every bottle that in or every can in which an alcoholic beverage was served. Um, that the Surgeon General said that there is no safe amount of alcohol during pregnancy, and don't drink when you're pregnant because it can cause serious problems um, to your unborn baby. And it's interesting, the studies on that have shown that, that people do read those and they are aware of them. 
but the problem is that people don't act on what they read. And that's been shown uh, that they don't. And that obviously is very, uh, is, is a great tragedy. Um, this project choices, which has been developed is a, I think is a positive thing. And I think that a lot of good has come out of uh, project choices. And, and many of you I'm sure have uh, been involved in this and know about it, but basically for those that, that don't, that you are given a choice basically of, of um, going on effective birth control um, or not drinking during pregnancy um, or both. And it's been shown very, very nicely that, um, that, that people listen to this and they make a choice to not drink during pregnancy um, or go on effective birth control and that it uh, clearly affects um, the prevalence of this uh, disorder. I think that most people go on a, an effective birth control uh, rather than stop drinking, but they go on a, an effective birth control. Unfortunately, again, uh, there are a lot of birth controls that aren't particularly effective, but that's, that's another story. The, the, the other issue that I am, must admit I am very excited about is this um, the awareness now that, that women, and I think this is fantastic, the vast majority of women, um, when they find out they're pregnant, they stop drinking. Um, and that's fantastic. And w whether it's a planned pregnancy or an unplanned pregnancy, it's been shown that when a woman finds out she's pregnant, bang, she stops drinking. Um, now, um, if a woman, the, the average time when a woman finds out she's pregnant in, in this country is five and a half weeks. Um, and that's, that's pretty early. Um, but that means that for the average woman in the United States, she is going to be drinking for the first five weeks of her pregnancy because she doesn't know she's pregnant. And so she's doing the same thing um, when she is in fact pregnant in those first five and a half weeks that she would um, do when she was not pregnant because she doesn't know she's pregnant. Um, now, if it's five and a half weeks, it's still a lot of drinking. And if it's um, the end of the first trimester, which it is for about 9% of women in this country, that's a long time of drinking. Um, so if you could, the, 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 what I'm going to talk to you about briefly here is some, some thinking now that's going on about trying to decrease the time between conception and pregnancy recognition. So if you could, if you could decrease um, let's say to, well, I'll, I'll go to the extreme. If you knew you were pregnant the minute that you got pregnant and therefore could say, well, I'm pregnant now, I'm not going to do a lot of the things that I would do if I, if I, um, if I wasn't, if I, if, if I, I I'm, I, I'm not going to do the things that I would do if I knew I was pregnant. Now, if I know I'm pregnant right away, when I find out when I am pregnant, that would be fantastic. But that's really I'm going to talk about that in a minute, but that's really wild uh, thinking. So there are studies now um, using one of these things called a, a aura ring, O-U-R-A, and I, I don't know how many of you are aware of it. Um, it has been used um, frequently by men and women to 
um, show what their heart rate is and how much energy they've spent over the last 24 hours and how many steps they've taken today and all kinds of things like that. And you wear it on your finger. It's sort of like a, the watch that you wear to do these things. You wear it on your finger as opposed to a, to a watch. And it's being used now or in a research way. It's being used um, to determine when you're pregnant. And it's being used um, to measure temperature elevation. Now, a woman's um, temperature goes up when she starts to menstruate, um, um, or just before she menstruates, her temperature goes up. Um, but this is a much higher temperature that goes up um, in the early, when there's a progesterone surge, one of the one of the hormones that is increased when you find out when you're pregnant, and that progesterone surge, which occurs early in the pregnancy, is picked up on that aura ring with a temperature elevation. And they are in the early stages of research on this at this point, but as opposed to five and a half weeks, they are being able to show that a woman can pregnancy can be identified at about five and a half days. So if you could, I think the potential for this is fantastic because if you found out you were pregnant at five and a half days five and, and stopped drinking, which as I've pointed out, women do when they find out that they're pregnant, if you could do it after five and a half days, that would be fantastic as opposed to five and a half weeks. The other thing, which is really sort of science fiction, is that it turns out, and this has been shown in every species that it has been looked at over a long period of time now. Uh, I mean, they've been working on this for a long period of time. And what they have found um, is that there is a, that, that, that the second the sperm hits the egg and breaks through the wall of the egg, there is what's called a zinc spark that occurs. And it just lights up um, because what happens is that um, there, there are billions of zinc atoms that are released um, when the sperm breaks through the egg. And that can be picked up and it can be seen in all kinds of animals that it has been looked at. Now, it has also been looked at, uh, at in us humans and it can be seen there as well, but it it, the zinc spark is seen uh, in in vitro fertilization. So it's it's different than if it was inside uh, the mother's uterus. If and and we and and I don't know whether that at some point will be able to be picked up in the sweat or in some some other way. At this point, I don't think that there's any chance that that can be picked up. But at some point, that's something certainly to be considered because if that was the case, a woman would know immediately uh, whether she was, that she was pregnant and therefore could make a decision as to what she wanted to do uh, far earlier, um, a lot earlier in her pregnancy. So I think that, that these two, this concept of decreasing the time from conception to pregnancy recognition is really a spectacular way to be thinking about um, increasing the chance of pre preventing um, this disorder. And listeners, you just got a masterclass in Dr. Jones' presentation because 
when I first listened to this, I actually listened to your presentation a couple of times, Dr. Jones, because this information, especially thinking about FASD prevention in the terms of changing, changing that shift, that paradigm shift of don't consume. Obviously, we know that, as you said, mothers do not want to consume alcohol once they find out. So changing the shift from, you know, the whole, um, I guess, the prevention tactics that we have now versus using science to using recognized methods of decreasing that time of unawareness, basically, that that a woman is not aware that she's pregnant. That right there, I think that's a game changer. And I, I was so excited to hear that because I really hope that, you know, this just grows and becomes more mainstream so that you don't have that big gap of five and a half weeks and, you know, even more, you, it, it becomes days. And to think of that technology, I think is pretty amazing, especially if we're, if we're thinking about how far FASD and its awareness prevention support has come in the past 50 years, we're approaching that 50 year anniversary. So uh, Dr. Jones, I, I, again, I'm a science geek. And when I heard that, especially the aura ring and the zinc spark, that just amazed me to think that that could be scientific technology that we could use to help decrease that unknown time and, and help increase in making those choices not to consume alcohol uh, during pregnancy. So, so thank you so much for sharing that. And, and um, I really hope that uh, the listeners are just excited about that as, as I am and really highlighting those four critical issues. Um, Because again, we know that stigma is, is huge. Stigma actually, I think is probably one of the biggest hurdles that we have as a community. So, so thank you for sharing that Dr. Jones. Where I'm going to come back to you in, in, in a little while. I want to talk to Andy now because you so highly recommended her. And I really just want to talk about what she's doing. And, and again, we're talking about shifting the paradigm. And I know a lot of what Andy does is she does a lot of reframing in, in her work with families at the clinic. So Andy, before we start talking about that, can you can you share a little bit of what you do um, specifically with families um, at the FASD clinic with Dr. Jones? Sure. Um, so currently at UCSD clinic, we're providing diagnostic services to families. Um, when patients come to our clinic, we do our best to support them and help them understand how their child's been affected. Over the past um, six years, I've done a lot of different tasks. I kind of consider myself, I wear multi-hats because of my background. I provided case management, some school advocacy to help with IEPs and 504s. I've helped families you know, get linked to some resources, providing psychoeducation about the spectrum, and also just being present to listen. With my therapeutic background, I really believe um, that is one of the challenges is just having these families be heard and understood um, because a lot of people don't understand the challenges and the frustration with this spectrum. Sometimes just listening to the parents and listening to the, how the FASD spectrum has affected their child and them just gives them a sense of hope and relief. Even helping the child understand why they act the way they do 
um, they're validated and giving them answers can make a world of difference in their lives. So in our clinic, I like to think that we're very compassionate and really provide that FASD lens to really help families overcome the challenges of FASD. And as a parent, our journey, it took us 15 years to get that diagnosis. And I can relate to what you're saying about needing that feeling of validation, because I think for so many parents, you look to so many different places for answers and you don't get the correct answer. Maybe you get a partially correct answer. Or maybe you get something that partially addresses it, but you don't get that complete answer, that complete aha until you get that diagnosis. And so being told for so long, no, that can't be it, or, or they don't even consider something. It really is, there really is such a sense of relief and validation. And I'm so thankful that you're providing that to those families, because I know personally, when, when we were told of our son's diagnosis, there was that sense of relief and validation that finally somebody understands, you know, how, <laughs> what's going on, not only with, with my child, but with our family, because we know, and we were talking about this before we started recording, we know that there's this significant ripple effect of how FASD not only affects the immediate family, extended family school, you know, it's, it's really this ripple effect. So Andy, I wanted to talk about something that you emphasized to me before we were recording about how you really are intentional in reframing discussions and reframing certain words and certain terminology with not only families, but educators, other clinicians, professionals. Let's talk about that because I think that if we're talking about FASD at 50, moving forward, we, we need to not only like Dr. Jones said, we need to change how our methods, our strategies for prevention and identification, but we also have to, to reframe how we discuss FASD. So if you could please share with our listeners what we were talking about reframing, because I think this is so important for people to understand this concept. Sure. Yeah, I guess with my background with therapy, reframing can be really powerful. Um, in our clinic, the message like I like to send is letting people know the education about getting to the root of the problem. Why is a child having these challenges? Why are these things happening? And it really is because of the teratogen alcohol, the damage that alcohol can do to the unborn baby and getting that message out about what can possibly happen and letting people know, you know, that it is this substance that causes these challenges for the kids. And that way it reduces the stigma and kind of generalizes it across populations. Um, alcohol, as Dr. Jones lectures and over the years, it is very dangerous, um, more than any other drug. And I think that's important for people to recognize, men, women, and just educate everybody about what can happen because FESD is 100% preventable. Um, and that's, I think, the most important takeaway. And that's just making people aware of the damages and how it does affect these babies and these children. So Andy, if I could jump in there. Yes. <laughs> um, I, I think that I, I, I hear what you're saying completely. And I, I, I know, I, I, I don't feel you made the point quite as much that 
we by that we for so long have been saying this is a problem of the mother herself as opposed to a problem of the of the drug alcohol yes thank you Ken. Could you, yeah. could, you, could you articulate that a little bit yeah uh, yeah because you know no, no no woman wants to hurt their baby no woman wants to you know do any damage to their loved baby but that's what i'm saying it's like if you present that education if you let people know you know that's what i'm saying it's like the root of the problem is the alcohol. It's not the action of the mom drinking. If a mother knew that there was a potential to hurt their baby, I'm sure the answer would be no. So that's what I'm saying. It's like the education to me is so important to get out to the world. And that way it is an informed decision, like you said, Dr. Jones. And that way they know they can change their behavior. But I really believe reframing the message and not blaming as so much as the mother drinking, but the effect of the, you know, letting them know that alcohol causes the brain damage. It's not the action of the mother. So it's shifting the frame of reference and really putting the blame um, on the, on the substance and not the mother. Yes. And thank you, Dr. Jones, for, for clarifying that, because that's exactly the point I wanted our listeners to, to really take home is that there needs to be a shift from the stigma of mother drinking. No, it's the alcohol damage, not only to the brain, but to, you know, <laughs> the rest of the body and, and everything that we're aware of. It, it, there needs to be that teratogen focus, you know, instead of maternal focus. And, and when that shift is made, then hopefully in the next 50 years, we can continue to move forward in strategies, you know, early identification, uh, prevention, all these wonderful things that that are on the horizon. Um, so I'm I'm really thankful, Andy, that you're you're sharing that with families. You know, I think again, there's just so much stigma behind FASD, and we all know that there should not be stigma behind FASD because it's the alcohol. It's, it's not the, the, the mother's consumption. Correct. It's the alcohol, you know? And so I'm just very, very thankful um, just for the amazing work that you both are doing out in California. And Dr. Jones, in our last conversation in, in January, and Andy, I'd like you to speak up on this too. Um, you spoke about the initiative of getting the pilot programs for the FASD centers of excellence up and going. You know, we're, we're about eight months um, down from that conversation. Could you provide our listeners with an update about what's happened or what we have to look forward to um, well, in those I, initiatives? I, 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 I will tell you where we are. <laughs> we're, Absolutely. We're as far as, as any of us would like to be, but, but um, you know, this is something that, I, I, I think without any question that there is hope as far as this condition is concerned. And I think that um, this FASD Respect Act, which is hopefully going to be coming up before the um, Senate and the House um, of Representatives sometime in the fall, hopefully as early as September. And that is a, will be legislation that will um, provide the opportunity for support to all states in the United States if they can come up with a program that um, 
would be worthy of getting money. Obviously, you can't just sit back without having any ideas about what you're going to do with the money. But but I think that this is this is not the first time the federal government has given money for fetal alcohol spectrum disorder. But I think the time is a lot. Um, it, the time is right now for it because there are um, major programs that are being developed in many, many states throughout the United States. So in, in our state, one of the things that we are, we are hopeful of developing with some of that money anyway, is um, um, FASD centers of excellence. And in those centers of excellence, um, the primary focus, at least in our state, uh, would hopefully be service. Um, and it would be, as I like to think about it, changing the culture of this disorder so that people throughout the entire community are aware of this disorder. And by virtue of being aware of this disorder and being aware of the fact that everybody knows a child or an adult with the fetal alcohol spectrum disorder, because it's that common, everybody knows them and many of them are in our own family. Um, and, and so we can change the culture so that this is not some unique, horrible thing, it's, 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 um, it's reality. And we need to get um, the juvenile justice system and the education system and the foster care system. We need to get social workers, we need to get, um, everybody involved uh, in this disorder and thinking about this disorder. And that I believe that that's what these centers of excellence um, can hopefully do um, so that we think about this disorder uh, totally differently. And at this point, um, we are only still on the drawing board about these centers of excellence. But here in California, if we can get uh, some money through this FASD Respect Act, we are. That's one of the things that I hope will be done with that uh, with that money as time goes on. And Andy, what are your thoughts about uh, what Dr. Jones has said about um, getting this pilot program off and and hopefully seeing it in every state, having an FASD Center of Excellence in every state. I think it would be the best thing because collaboration is key for these kiddos um, who've been affected. I mean, collaboration and communication has the best outcome for treatment. Um, I'm a firm believer in getting to the root of how, you know, these children or people are wired when they've been affected. And every child we see in our clinic is so unique and special. It's so important to really understand, you know, the root of their challenges. At the age of five, um, Dr. Jones, you know, we've always said you can start to really do good neurobehavioral testing. And that's really hard to get. It's really hard to find providers that will do that. But with that neurobehavioral testing, you can really understand the challenges, the strengths and weaknesses of these children to really develop an effective treatment plan. So having like a center that you can just refer people to and these children to will really help reduce the stress of the families and the child, will really help educate people to what works and what doesn't work. Half the frustration that we see in clinic is that a lot of times there's um, solutions and referrals put in place, but it's not really matching to how they're wired. So take a child who has extreme memory deficits, short-term and long-term. 
and they may have an IEP in school or they're in therapy. I kind of call it, they have Swiss cheese brain. So they're really not comprehending. So they're missing their goals or they're getting frustrated. And then the provider is getting frustrated because you're doing the same thing over and over again. So I think the centers of excellence, like I always say, it's, a, it's, I'm hoping it's really soon in the future because the sooner you help these children get diagnosed, the sooner you start putting effective treatments in place, people are less frustrated and the child starts to feel successful. Um, one of my things as a therapist is self-esteem. Mental health is really tied to this. So having someplace like that for these families can go to for support and effective assessments and sitting down with people um, to really discuss like what works and doesn't work. It's a dream come true and it needs to happen sooner rather than later. So strength-based FASD informed approaches, I'm all for it. I am too. I am too. And Andy, I love how you said collaboration and communication. Those, those are the keys to success in, in supporting and, and, and working with um, anyone that has an FASD. I, I love that. And that is, that is so true. Um, you know, from lived experience, we, we definitely know that that is true. Um, so Dr. Jones, we're approaching 50 years of your world-changing discovery of FAS. We are hopeful. And like you said, especially with the FASD Respect Act, with recognition, with just, just the things that are down the road, we're very hopeful for the FASD community. What are your hopes for the future of those uh, individuals with FASD and their families and loved ones? Right. I, I really am... Um... I, well, I, I think that you've very successfully gone through all of my hopes as far as this is concerned, um, but I'll, I'll reiterate some of them. I, you know, I think that we all can deal, we, we all, everybody in the world can deal with um, doing something um, to um, affect stigma in these kids and their, and their biologic mothers in particular. Um, and I think that that really is the first hope that I have, that we could turn around this horrible stigma that exists um, as far as things are concerned. And, this, and, and then um, from that, I, I really think that um, we, if, if we could get these centers of excellence started, and, and you mentioned one center of excellence in each state, and I would like to have five centers yes. of excellence in each state yes. so that it could be in each large community and even in some smaller communities in, in this country. Um, so that we could really change the culture as it relates to this disorder and, and uh, create a situation where, where um, people are all aware of this disorder. We need to make people aware of this disorder so that we can then move forward with things. And um, um, quite frankly, I, I would really, um, I would really, um, um, among other things, I would hope that we can change the um, the way the medical profession thinks about this disorder, and that we could get um, doctors when they see a child um, who is brought in by that child's mother um, at two and three years of age, 
when that child um, is slow in talking and is a little bit aggressive uh, to uh, his or her brother or sister or in preschool um, or in daycare uh, is having a little bit of problems making friends and, and that sort of thing. And the mom brings that child into the pediatrician and says how worried that she is about how her child is doing in terms of speech and in terms of other things in term, as it relates to behavior, that that physician will think first of alcohol and try to get at the issue of alcohol as far as that child is concerned and she is concerned. And obviously not pediatrician to say, um, you didn't drink alcohol during pregnancy, did you? And, but could go into it in a way that is kind and compassionate and, and, um, and, and, and get to the bottom of that. So, that. so that that child can get into an intervention program that's appropriate because it, it is clear at this point um, that this disorder uh, is related uh, to a unique, to unique abnormalities. And Andy has talked to you about the unique behavioral and neurobehavioral uh, differences that these children have. And their interventions are also unique. And one of the great research issues that is going on at this point, as far as this disorder is concerned, um, is developing interventions. And those interventions are being developed for this disorder. So the first thing that one has to have when one um, wants to refer a child to an intervention program, you need to know whether the child has fetal alcohol spectrum disorder or not um, before you can pick the intervention program that's gonna be right for that child. Um, so I would, I would really hope that the, the, the pediatricians and obstetricians and general practitioners of this country who are seeing children who have developmental problems think when they are thinking about what might have caused it, who think about prenatal alcohol exposure. And Dr. Jones, I just kind of want to piggyback off what you said, just talking about the therapies and interventions. One of the things I think about working with our patients is because they're so unique, they have a lot of strengths and coming from a strength-based approach and a kinesthetic approach. These kids need hands-on type of therapies and interventions. They need things that help them be active. So being creative and finding solutions to help these kids um, and helping people realize that, you know, they can be outdoors and it's non-traditional. So that's just important. I think when families think about how do we help these children and providers, that's a way to think outside the box. Um, because you're really trying to help this child. And because they're so unique, you can think outside the box. And that sometimes has the best outcomes. So just being creative and understanding if something doesn't work, um, not taking it too personal, you have to try something else. So it's not um, one size fits all, but being creative definitely can really help these kids. Talk about equine therapy. Oh, yeah. So one of the things is, um, because it's kinesthetic, working with animals, um, equine therapy, music, art. Um, I am an animal lover by heart, so I'm very much into the equine therapy. It can teach skills, and these children really struggle with adaptive functioning. So the daily living, the things that we kind of take for granted. So sometimes working with animals can really help 
teach them about taking care of things and following your routines and kind of the importance of, you know, caring because these children have kind hearts. So I think of how these children are and how to make, as I say, new connections, how to help rewire them into a more positive environment. So when you're thinking about treatment and helping them, positive strategies, positive wiring, creating better and new connections. And I think animals can do that because they have a compassionate and an empathetic part. So just kind of keeping that in the back of your head, coming always from a strength-based approach. And who doesn't like cute, cuddly animals? Um, for the majority of people in the world, we're animal lovers, but for kids especially, it's a very non-judgmental zone um, and they can be themselves. And the animals are just a different component for sure. I love that. I love that. And we've had two service dog organizations this year on FASD Hope, one of them specifically for uh, children and teens and, and young adults with FASD. So I'm really thankful, Andy, that you're bringing up, uh, you know, uh, piggyback on, on what Dr. Jones is saying, thinking out of the box when it comes to strategies and support and services um, for our loved ones with FASD, you know, I think that that is so important because like, like Dr. Jones said, this is a very unique diagnosis. This is a very unique disorder. Therefore it needs very unique strategies and supports and services. So I am so thankful to have you both on today on FASD Hope, particularly since we're airing this on International FASD Awareness Day. Dr. Jones, you kindly shared your your hopes. Um, and again, Dr. Jones, I know I said this last time, but just on behalf of all of the parents and family members listening, thank you so much for your your past 50 years and then some, because I know you're going to keep going. We joked about that in your last episode, but thank you so much, Dr. Jones, for, for opening the door for our kids, um, you know, and, and adults who are, um, all the more um, being served better because of your amazing um, discoveries and your amazing recognition of, of FAS back, back in 1973. So Andy, we heard from Dr. Jones with his hopes for the FASD community. Um, I like to end our episodes with hope takeaways and you've given us some tremendous words of hope. Do you have any uh, closing words of hope that you can give to our listeners? Um, again, we're airing this on FASD Awareness Day, and I think the community has come a long way. We still have a long way to go, but we're all hopeful in legislation. We're hopeful in, in new discoveries and research. What are your words of hope for our listeners? Just knowing that you're not alone. There are people who understand you and support you. Um, it's going to change. It has to change. Um, the message, the treatment, the solutions, um, it's evolving. We're thinking differently and with technology and people advocating for it, it will change. And I truly believe that. So have hope. Thank you everyone for listening to today's special episode, FASD at 50. I'm so honored to have Dr. Kenneth Lyons-Jones and Andy Torzone of the University of California, San Diego fetal alcohol spectrum disorder clinic. Thank you so much, Dr. Jones and Andy for being on FASD Hope today, providing us with updates, with amazing research on the horizon, and most of all, 
hope for our community. Thank you so much. Thank, Thank you. you very much. Thanks again for listening to FASD Hope with Natalie Becchione. If you like our show and want more information, check out FASDHope.com or please leave us a five-star rating and review and follow us on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Make sure you join us again next week and remember to be informed, take care, and always have hope.